Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the last episode, with dramatic images of the tearing of cloth and bursting of wineskins, Jesus made the point that partying with the sinners, or feasting with the freshly liberated, is part of the revolution. These actions are part of how the movement will tear the fabric and burst the wineskins of the old society. Of course, you may have noticed that in those parabolic images, Jesus actually talks about not tearing the fabric or bursting the wineskins. One perceptive listener picked up on that and asked me about it in a message through the Facebook page for this podcast. Something that you can do, by the way. So, I realized that I did not explain very well how an image about not tearing fabric and not bursting wineskins is actually about tearing fabric and bursting wineskins. Well, I do have an explanation for this that I had in my notes, but it did not, for some reason, make it to the final cut of my episode text. Here is how I think it works. Jesus is being clever and ironic. On the one hand, the kingdom of heaven, the new society, is a whole new thing. It is not a patch on the old system. It is not merely something that you can pour into the old ways. Rather, it is a whole new thing, a whole new system, that needs its own wineskin, as it were, its own ways and timetables and laws. But the new society will be built in the shell of the old, and it will tear the fabric and burst the wineskins of the old society. There will be a clash between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. And in that clash, the blood of the martyrs will be spilled. First the blood of Jesus, and then the blood of all who take up the cross and follow Jesus. The Greek word for tearing in this passage is the same word that will be used for the curtain in the temple tearing at the crucifixion of Jesus. And the wine that is spilled is a symbol in the literature of the early church for the blood of Jesus. So this text foreshadows the crucifixion, just as many of the texts throughout the story do and it speaks to the revolutionary nature of the kingdom of heaven, the new society. The kingdom of heaven is revolutionary because it will clash with and tear the fabric of the old society, burst its wineskins. I hope that makes sense. In the last episode, I also mentioned a text from Zechariah that critiques fasting practices. And when Zechariah talks about the time when fasting turns to celebration, he punctuates the momentousness of the occasion by saying that foreigners will grab the hem of a garment of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's Zechariah 8.23. Well, in the passage for this episode, a woman does something very similar. My name is Bert Newton, and this is episode 22 of Bible study, parody and subversion in Matthew's Gospel.
Let's read verses 18 to 26 of chapter 9. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a ruler came and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for twelve years came up behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I touch his clothes, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the ruler's house, he saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. He said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. But they laughed at him. When the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout that district. Jesus here continues the work of reconciling the common people who have been alienated from each other. Matthew symbolizes this reconciliation by portraying two healing stories intertwined with each other. The healing of a woman suffering from hemorrhages, the Greek word here indicates uncontrolled menstrual bleeding, and the healing of a ruler's daughter. The first woman seems to be a marginalized person, the latter the daughter of a high-status person. Both of these people are marginalized through their gender status. Both are unclean according to the purity code, one by virtue of having a hemorrhage or uncontrolled menstrual bleeding, and the other by virtue of being dead. Both the bodies of hemorrhaging women and the bodies of dead people were, according to the law, unclean as long as they remained in those states. The latter, of course, were not expected to make a full recovery. In the case of so-called hemorrhaging women, however, while most would, of course, realize an end to their menstrual flow, the woman in this story has been suffering from an uncontrolled flow for 12 years. The Greek indicates one continuous hemorrhage, rather than multiple hemorrhages, as the NRSV renders it. But multiple hemorrhages is probably more realistic, and likely what the author of Matthew has in mind. At any rate, she was either perpetually unclean or frequently unclean for long periods of time, and therefore socially marginalized leading a very difficult existence. Anyone who touched the body of a hemorrhaging woman would be unclean for the rest of the day, until dark. Anyone touching the body of a dead person would be unclean for seven days. As in the case of the man with the skin condition, however, Jesus doesn't become unclean by touching them. Instead, his contact heals them, making them clean. Again, his purity seems to be contagious. As I have said previously, this healing and cleansing through touch may not be completely unprecedented in ancient Israel. There are later records of rabbis doing it. But as a hallmark of Jesus' movement for a new society, it is significant. In the new society, people will be able to heal and cleanse each other without aid of profit-making healers, or the costly certification of purity by the temple.
The version of this story found in Mark is a bit more dramatic. The ruler, who is specifically identified as a synagogue ruler, comes and begs Jesus to come heal his daughter, who is about to die. The girl is not dead yet, so Jesus has to come quickly before she dies. But on the way, he is touched by the woman with the hemorrhage and stops to interact with her. At the end of that interaction, word arrives that the synagogue ruler's daughter has died. So Jesus need not come to the house. In other words, by tending to the needs of the marginalized woman, Jesus has failed to attend to the needs of the high-status household. Of course, Jesus goes on to the house anyway and raises the girl from the dead, but the point has been made that all God's daughters are equally important. Matthew abbreviates the story, as he often does with material that he gets from Mark, and has the report at the outset that the girl is already dead. So it is not quite as dramatic, but the point is the same. Matthew retains enough detail to emphasize the contrast between this lone marginalized woman and the elite household. The ruler brings his request to Jesus directly, respectfully, according to cultural norms, but with confidence. The woman, in contrast, sneaks up from behind, trying not to be noticed. But Jesus stops his progression to the ruler's house to attend to her, addressing her as daughter. He then locates the source of her healing, not in himself, but in her. He makes the point of saying that it is her faith that has healed her. And the word that is actually used for healing is not the usual one. It is actually the word that is often translated to save. It can also mean to liberate. Jesus tells this woman that her own faith has liberated her. He then proceeds to the ruler's house, where he gets laughed at but raises the girl from the dead anyway. Despite the behavior and attitudes of the people around them, both daughters find healing and liberation. Both are honored by Jesus. But that is not all that is going on in this scene. Just as the previous scene in last week's episode alluded to the death of Jesus through the spilling of wine, symbolizing blood, this scene does something very similar. In this case, the women experience the suffering and the liberation that Jesus will experience later. The hemorrhaging woman experiences a flow of blood, which Jesus will experience on the cross. In chapter 27, verse 49, the narrator will tell us specifically that blood with water flows from Jesus' side on the cross. The girl experiences death and then resurrection, just as Jesus will. So, in chapter 8, Matthew declared that Jesus fulfills the text from Isaiah that says, He bore our sicknesses and carried our diseases. Matthew presents us with the fulfillment here in chapter 9 in the foreshadowing that Jesus will bear the suffering of the women on the cross, as well as their liberation in the resurrection. Jesus goes on from there to heal two blind men 
and a deaf mute. Let's read verses 27 through 34. As Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying loudly, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus sternly ordered them, See that no one knows of this. But they went away and spread news about him throughout that district. After they had gone away, a demoniac, who was a mute, was brought to him. When the demon had been cast out, the one who had been mute spoke, and the crowds were amazed and said, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, By the ruler of the demons, he casts out the demons. With these two episodes, Matthew rounds out this series of healings in chapters 8 and 9. The healings of the blind men and of a deaf-mute complete the imagery from the prophets that lies behind these chapters. We can hear in the background the words of Isaiah when the prophet sings of Israel's liberation from foreign oppression. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. That's from Isaiah 35, 5-6. All that Jesus has been doing in the last two chapters, healing people and gathering in the outcasts of society, are images from the prophets of liberation for Israel from foreign oppression and the dawning of an age of justice. As if to highlight that Jesus is doing acts of liberation, the two blind men call him Son of David. There was a popular belief that a descendant of King David would come and liberate Israel from Rome. This is the first time in the story that a human character in the story addresses Jesus as Son of David. Only the narrator and an angel have said that so far. Ironically, however, Jesus' liberation contrasts with the methods of David. David waged military campaigns. Jesus liberates through a campaign of healing. This contrast will continue to be a theme in the story. There is, interestingly, an ancient, mostly extra-biblical tradition that Solomon, the literal son of David, healed people and cast out demons. This last healing of the mute man in chapter 9 is actually an exorcism. Exorcisms in this story highlight the Roman source of oppression. Satan, in the literature of the early church, was understood to be the spirit behind the Roman Empire. So those possessed by demons, Satan's agents, bore the symptoms of Rome's oppression. One symptom of that oppression was muteness, in other words, not being able to speak freely. Reading the gospel text from the standpoint of privileged modern North Americans, we can easily forget that occupied people are often highly restricted in their freedom of expression. The mute man represents that dimension of the Roman occupation of Israel in this story. He does not enjoy freedom of speech until Jesus liberates him. Another irony in this story is that before liberating the mute man to be able to speak, 
he tells the blind men not to speak, to keep their healing on the down low, probably because he is trying not to attract the attention of the authorities. This attempt to run a secret underground movement never seems to work, however, and we find the Pharisees appearing at the exorcism of the mute man. The Pharisees are the least hostile group in the ruling class, but hostile nonetheless. They accuse Jesus of having the spirit of Rome, the prince of demons, which then gives him the power to order the demons out of the people. Jesus does not answer this accusation at this point. They will make the accusation again in chapter 12. Jesus will answer them at that point. For now, Jesus will instead begin to infuse others with the authority to heal and liberate people. And that will be the topic of the next passage. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this podcast series is provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. You can find this podcast on Buzzsprout, where it is hosted, and also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, Podcast Attic, Podchaser, Deezer, Listen Notes, and many other places. You can leave comments and questions at our Facebook page, which is under the name Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. There's no Bible study in the name. I tried to change that, but I couldn't. This has been Episode 22 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.